Toi tū te marae o tangarua. Toi tū te marae o tāne. Toi tū te iwi. If the domain of tangarua is nurtured and survives, and if the domain of tāne is nurtured and survives, the domain of man will be nurtured and will survive. He mihi tēnei ki a koutou katoa, nau mai hoki mai ki te hōtaka nei o te ahikā, ko maraia rakraku i tēnei. Kia ora, tātou katoa. Welcome to Te Ahikā, your weekly Māori fix from Radio New Zealand National. I'm Maraia Rakraku. Last week we dedicated our programme to the 2009 National Kapahaka Festival, Te Matatini, held in Tauranga Moana. And over the next few weeks, Te Ahikā will bring you highlights from that event. It's such a huge occasion on the Māori calendar that it's a bit like Spot the Fano, as Tiahi car producer Justine Murray did when she bumped into one of the more public exponents of Tāmoku and Aotearoa, Tame Iti. Just look when this is a big venue around, and then she always, uh, always potential artists who want to put something on your skin. And I'm one of those fellas. They always ask, say, much, much, what? You got any spare skin? Oh, yeah, always a spare skin. How do you negotiate the balance between old and new, between your job and your hapu needs? That's something Te Marino Lenahin weighs up as a cultural advisor to a development that's been taking place just out of Kaiapoi, north of Christchurch. The journey we've been on here uh, isn't, hasn't been easy, and it hasn't been easy for a number of reasons. Um, you know, we're dealing with our past and... There's been parts of our history that have been, um, you know, a point of of, uh, mamai for our people. And what this development is doing, in part, is stirring that up. I often wear my my bright orange vest to our runanga meetings and think to myself, oh, it's bulletproof. How do Māori stay connected to their Māori tanga when they're based, in some cases, for generations in another country? Well, one way is through kapahaka, as Justine discovered when she met with Melbourne-based kapahaka rōpū, Poi Piripi, last week at a marae in Tauranga. Well, basically in Aussie, is, we want to honestly a lot of Māoris, and, and you, you know, to improve life and get, get somewhere in life, besides, you know, staying home and doing drags and stuff, so when we do kapaika, we all as, as one whanau, and though we're from different um, tribes and stuff, yeah, we, we all come together and just, <coughs> it feels awesome, you can, you can feel the vibe. Gordon is serving to Teaika, Radio National. Mozzies. Now there's a term that's entered the vernacular, mozzies. Māori Australians, Māori who live in Australia, Māori born in Australia. A Tipuni Kōkiri Ministry of Māori Affairs report in 2007 estimates that between 115 and 125,000 Māori may be living in Australia. That's the population of Dunedin, or the whole of Ngāpuhi Iwi. And while the initial immigration was to industries like sheep shearing and mines back in the late 1980s, seems Māori continue to leave Aotearoa and stay in Australia due to the perceived better economic conditions. Another one of my cousins flew out last week, and before he left I asked him if there was anything about home that he was going to miss. 
They reckon not really. He's going to whānau over there. And they've basically just recreated a whole Māori community over there. And that seems to be the key for survival for many Māori, including Melbourne-based kapahakaropu, Poipiripi. Taking in a number of well-known suburbs such as St Kilda, Ripponlea and Alwood, the city of Port Phillip in Melbourne, Australia, covers a 20-kilometre range, and it's where the Kapahaka group's based. So here's a translation for you. PDP, Phillip, and Port, Poi. Poi, PDP. Drawing their membership of second and third generation mozzies, Poi PDP is more than just a kapahakaropu. Melbourne-based Māori can hook up and reconnect with their taha Māori, their Māori roots. Be that through haka, kai, whānau gatherings, there's even talk about setting up a marae. So when the National Kapahaka Festival in Aotearoa rolls around, what better time to travel home, perform, catch up with whānau and have a good time doing so. Justin Murray for Tiahika, and we're in the Whare Kai of Waikari Marae with the Melbourne group Poi Piripi, and the Hokainga group is providing entertainment. Justin Murray here for Tiahika, and it's uh, the pre-Matatini Eve, and I'm here at Waikari Marae, which is a, in an area called Matapihi in Tauranga Moana, and, and I'm with the group from Melbourne. Kia ora koutou. Kia ora. Now you're from the Poi Piripi Ropu. Yep. yep. From Melbourne. From Melbourne, yep. Now yep, this we're, is... We're the kangaroos. <laughs> Do you think you have a slight twang in your... like? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, do you reckon? No, I don't think so, actually. Ah, no, we've still got the accent, eh? I mean, you know, but I can't say so much for my kids, but, you know, they've got the twang twang. Now, this yeah. is significant because this is the first time that a Melbourne group has performed in the Matatini since 1992. Yeah, that's right. Now, yeah. how privileged do you feel? I'm, I'm just over the world, you know, I've just got a big buzz. I mean, this, this you know, I've always, I've always been there for Matatini when I was here, just to watch them and to be actually in it, it's just, you know, it's mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Yeah, it's, Absolutely wonderful, yeah. Tell us what it took to get here. Did you fundraise from home? Did you, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah, a lot of hangies, a lot of socials, yeah. How do you cook your hangi? How do you cook your hangi in Melbourne? <laughs> well, <laughs> copy on that one. the same as we cook it over yeah? here. Yeah, it's the same. Yeah. No fire restrictions? All the time, yeah. all the time. So, so you know, we, we kind of modernise ourselves and use gas blowers. <laughs> but, I mean, no, it all tastes the same. Kia ora, kia ora fire. Kua uh, my name is Kitty Dews. Kitty Dews. And I'm an elder with the group. Come over to support them. And um, hope to take back a lot of inspiration from the performances that they'll see here. Now, uh, I've been told that you have composed a number of the, the wayata in the performance of the, the ropu. Yes, and I'm very proud of them. They do, do my songs justice. Choice. <laughs> and what's Melbourne like to, to live? Well, I've been there 39 years. And so, you know, what drags you to places is uh, your family. So 
a lot of my mokopunas and mokopuna tuaru are all born there. And so where they are, that's where I am. It's always good to come home though? It's the best thing in the world to come home and recharge my batteries. <laughs> you are the leader of the Ropu? Uh, yeah, I am. And you were um, tell us, tell me about your um, upbringing. Were you born and raised in Melbourne? Or? No, no, no. We we moved to Melbourne when I was um, just I was four. I was just turning five. And I grew up there. Yeah. So I'm a bit of a true blue, true blue Aussie. And so how long have you lived there now? Uh, thirty. I'm thirty-five, so thirty years. Thirty-one wow. years. Yeah. So tell us about the journey to get the Rokui to Tauranga Moana. Oh look, so, you know, it was a hard journey. I mean. We had to do a lot of fundraising to get us here, so, um, but we're here, and that's the main thing, is us being here and um, just to be able to participate in the whole thing. It's just awesome, you know. Um, we, we, you know, it's just the vibe. We've all, we're already into the vibe, and we haven't even seen any other, of the other groups yet, but, you know, um, our inspiration's all here. You know, we, we watched them at the Tini, you know, all, throughout all the festivals and all the big groups, you know, they, they're a big inspiration for us, so... Yes, it's good to be here, you know, good to be able to get on the stage, the same stage that they're on and hopefully, you know, we you know, we can uh, we can produce something anyway. Now for the regionals that happen in Aotearoa, tell tell us how it's run in Australia, the regional competitions. Uh, pretty much well, um, our regionals over there pretty much cover every state in Australia, so um, uh, we we have to battle with Sydney, Queensland, Perth. You know, there's there's a lot of Maoris over there, a lot of Maoris. So you know, everyone everyone loves their kapa haka, Everyone's doing it. You know, and everyone's pretty strong to it. You know, proud to be Maori, even though we're living there. And um, you know, that they'll never, they don't can never take that away from us. I mean, although I grew up there, I'll always be a Maori. I mean, yeah, I could say I'm Australian, but I'm a Maori first. You know. There is a, a dream to have a a marae eventually set up in Melbourne. Yeah, there's. Um, a lot of our children are born there, and they're being born there every day. Um, <clears throat> you know, just just for them to learn, to learn the tikanga, to learn, you know, to be Māori. Um, not only that's pretty sad when we have our tangihanga over there and we don't have a marae. You know, a lot of our people get buried there, and that's a reality. And um, pretty much it goes down in the, you know, in the, in the whanau house. And um, you now if we could, we could do this heoranga, yeah, heoranga of Muti. Our waiatas represent issues that are happening over there for us. Choice. And so, you know, um, to deliver the, those those kōrero, to, to deliver the kaupapa of a marae. And, um, yeah, and just that's it mainly. And when, if we can do that, we can come off doing the best show we can possibly do, then we'll be happy with that. So what does kapahaka mean to you, bro? Well, basically in Aussie, is we want to honestly a lot of Māoris and, and you... You know, to improve life and get get somewhere in life. Besides, you know, staying home and doing drugs and stuff. So we'll, when we do kapaika, we all as, as one farmer, even though we're from different um, tribes and stuff. Yeah, we, we all come together and just it feels awesome. You can you can feel the vibe between it. That's your first time in Tauranga? Oh, it's my first time in Tauranga. Yeah, yeah. And, and and what's your first sort of kind of um, perception of, of of this place in Aotearoa? Beautiful. Beautiful. Loving it. Green grass. Green grass. Green grass. So, is well, there no green grass in Melbourne? You can call it. You can call that Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like dirt. Really green. Uh, like it's like yellow. And so, what does kapahaka mean to you, bro? Oh, just like 
for back in Australia, well, I do call home now when people do say where you're from, it's Australia. It's just like when everyone gets together, all the Maoris back home get together, it's not like, oh, because you're from here, you know, you, this is another group. It's like, it's like one of the best best places you can be is in Melbourne. Like all around, all around Australia could come, but to be with Omkamani and be with my family is the best, especially with my brother and my sister. Do you think you'll ever come home and retire or move back home? Nah. Nah, I'm wahine back home, don't want to come home. Why? <laughs> they make a lot of money. <laughs> Members of Melbourne-based Kapahaka Poi Pitipi hanging out with Justin Murray at Te Matitini. Marino Lenehan is doing his bit for his hapu, Nai Tuahuriri. He's a cultural advisor for Pegasus Town, a development taking place near Kaiapoi, that's just north of Christchurch. Now this is huge. I visited there in September and was blown away by the sheer size of what's going to be a mini city, with dwellings for 7,000 people. The first time I saw Pegasus Town was late at night as I was driving from Kaikoura to Christchurch. These beautifully lit up popo marking the entrance drew me in. They seemed to almost rise out of the mist. They were about eight metres in height. Now from what I could see as I looked in were these perfectly constructed streets and thousands of lamplights marking the streets, but there were no houses. Cue to a few days later, and I got shivers up my spine again when Demarino Lenehan, cultural advisor to Pegasus Town, showed me the site of a pa that was unearthed during the excavation of the land. Uh, we're here at um, Pegasus Town, uh, and I'm just, we're just looking at a map of the district. So you've got your Waimakariri River down here in the south, and in the north you've got the Rakahuri River, which is the Ashley River. And Pegasus Town site is probably about oh, 2 or 3k away from the Rakahuri River all marked there in red. And the key feature on the landscape here is, is well, the famous one is the Kaiapoi Pa, which is right on the uh, northern boundary of the town. Uh, but the thing is, our people didn't live in Pa sites every day, all day. They lived across this landscape. So we know the Pa's there, but we also know that our people lived from river to river and inland. And so the town itself... Um, sits on old ancestral land and right now we're on the edge of even an older par site that uh, our people had pretty much forgotten it's that old uh, we recall that prior to Kaiapui Pa being established there was an earlier settlement and some people say that's Ngati Mamui uh, some of the old people say that's Waitaha uh, but definitely an old uh, area where our ancestors lived and uh, during this development we've had an archaeological team working uh, they've been working for about three years now and as the ground's been cut 
by the development. Our, our team has been there, and that's uh, a lead archaeologist, Dr. Dan Witter, and his wife, Alison. And uh, we've had our own whanaunga from uh, Ngai Tuahuriri, from our Tuahibi families, working alongside them. And initially we had one, Bill Murphy, and then there was two. Uh, and ultimately we got up to 12 of our cousins out here working with the archaeological team. And that's reflective of just how much there is out here. Um, we've probably come across six or seven hundred archaeological sites, and so a lot more than what anyone probably thought. And this and is what landmass are we covering here? How, how large? We're talking four hundred plus hectares of land. So a huge site. People don't really realise how big it is until they come for Get a drive here. around and <laughs> it's huge. Goes, oh, holy smoke! How big it is. Um, so. On the one hand, this discovery of the old past site has been um, quite sensitive for some of uh, our elders. Uh, we've uncovered five or six different burials around here, and um, some we've been able to leave where we found them and ask the developer to move uh, what was there around it so we didn't have to disturb it, but on other occasions we've had to disturb it and excavate the bones and um, we're just looking after them at the moment. But the biggest, I suppose, discovery has been this pass site which we're standing on the edge of and you can see over there uh, under the blue tarp hole in, in the framework um, that's where the palisade fence post holes. There's a line running across there and at the moment our team, our crew out here is just excavating some of those post holes for, since the working in, a, in, in one of the post holes there and they pulled out a piece of greenstone about that big which is probably what, three or four fists big um, yeah so <clears throat> sensitive for some of our people um, particularly our elders because we had to disturb the past but it's also um, quite exciting on a different level I know our crew out here um, our cultural monitors who have been on the ground um, getting their fingers dirty and, and you know doing the hard yards here getting intimate, I suppose, with the archaeology. Um, you know, there, there's been times when there's been great excitement out here and just with the discoveries and and I know uh, just listening to them speak just how much it means to us, means to them, uh, learning about our past firsthand out here and learning through the eyes of an archaeologist, that's one level, but then also we all bring our own stories from our own families and the archaeological uh, perspective sits alongside that <clears throat> and we come up with you know a better idea of what was here a better idea of who was here and how we lived on this landscape and so it's um it's been on that level it's been exciting and a, a real real um important journey for us and we, we've just been privileged to be the ones who have been out on the land here doing the job for our people um, on behalf of them I'm talking with uh, Te Marino Lenahen. Now, well, how did it get discovered? Because, you know, you've got to be able to read. Uh, you've got to be able to read a site if you're going to identify it as a past. So, I mean, how did it get unearthed? Well, all this landscape has been unearthed yep. in preparation for the development. So yep. as the scrapers come through and start lifting the, the topsoil, Mm -hmm. You can see over there, oh, there's the remains of a pile of topsoil. So they lift all the topsoil, get down to uh, the subgrade, and then they shape the land. And when, once they've got all the land shaped, then they bring this topsoil back and put it on top. Okay. And so as they were doing that, uh, our cultural monitors, had, who have been trained by the archaeologist, 
uh, they've been trained to identify the different sign in the, in the, in the earth. Right. Um, that's one of our key roles out here was to monitor all that earthwork. And as the sign come out of the ground, uh, our, our guys were there um, with their fists full of flags. You can see all those flags still standing over there. Yep. Each of those flags marks a site that needs to come. We need to come back and investigate that site. So they'll mark the site. Uh, the archaeologist will come through and just check um, what it might be. If it's important, if it's bone, for instance, human bone, well, the operation shuts down in that area and uh, they move on to other areas. Um, if it's greenstone, um, it might be just easy to, to lift if it's in a single piece. Um, if it's part of a wider site, like this par site here, um, we shut down the site and uh, it's shut down until the archaeological team has a chance to come back, um, right. do all they need to do, do the excavations that are required, and then they can clear the way and uh, the construction team can get back in here. So it's been, uh, potentially it's been a point of contention. Um, with the developers? With with the developers and with, with the contractors, because we, we understand that uh, they're here to do a job and they're here on a particular time frame and they need to get things done within that time frame so we really haven't wanted to hold them up more than is necessary um, but we've wanted to do our job properly and we know that that tension was going to exist and so one of the things we wanted to do is from the very first moment that these contractors come on site uh, we wanted to meet them and just shake their hand and introduce ourselves and let them know where they are and give them a bit of a sense of, of the history of this landscape and explain to them why we're here uh, what we're doing and hopefully um, let them know that we want to work together with them and that's worked you know it's worked um, 90, 99% of the guys out here have just been marvellous and really respectful there's always a you know a rotten apple in the barrel and you, you find out who they are and, and their mates look after them and sort them sort them out but yeah we've, we've just been real privileged with the guys out here and um, so as we've come across sites like this They've understood where we're coming from, and they've shown that respect. And uh, the, you know, I'm sure they've had to bite their tongue a few times, perhaps. Um, so, so Timarino, is this literally breaking new ground, like in terms of the strategies that you, you're utilising with the crew here? I, I don't know what, what's happened elsewhere in the country. We're, we're just trying to do what we think is best. I, when, when I started this job and was um, asked to, to come along and, and be our hapu, our runanga liaison with the developer. Um, I sort of <coughs> had a strategy in mind, and, and that strategy was not to pick any one side as a winner. Um, the developer pays us to be here, myself and our cultural monitors. How many um, cultural monitors are there? At the moment we're back down to three. Um, the, the field work is getting close to being complete now, so there isn't the, the level of work to... To sustain 12 guys but when we were all out here working on site at the par there was 12 of us uh, plus myself was 13 and then the rest of the archaeological crew so we had a you know a real force out here um, so yeah in the beginning um, what I was asked to do is to look after our heritage number one is to make sure that um, the building of this town uh, didn't take place without respecting and, and recognising that for hundreds and hundreds of years our ancestors had been here beforehand. Um, that's the heritage of this landscape 
and that's the heritage of this district. You know, and it's this country's heritage, and we, oh, you know, we believe that that's a tonga, that's a treasure for our country. And so our job here was to make sure that that was looked after. Um, and as I'd say to the developer, you know, that's actually beneficial for you guys as well. You know, that's a win-win. If we can look after our heritage out here, um, that's a good thing for you. You know, that they want to build a community here. They're not just about building houses. Uh, they make, they've made that pretty clear. They're looking to, they're building a town. This is a town for yeah. five to seven thousand people. Yeah. Um, they want to build a community, and well, we've got heritage here. We've got history, um, and we'd like to share that with with all of our own people and with the people around us, and that helps build a sense of place. Um, that helps build a community, and so that's what we were saying to the developer that. Uh, this is a good thing. It's a real good thing um, for your community. You know, and at the end of the day, it's our community because we come from here. And the developer will complete the job, and with a number of years after that, they'll be on to the next job and the next job. And so we've said to them, uh, you know, in 100, 200, 1,000 years, we'll still be here. Yeah. And we'll still have the relationship with this land. Um, and that's the thing we've been here for five, six, seven hundred years already. So. Um, Number one, we want to look after that heritage so we can pass it on to the people who live here. And that, that, that struck a note, I think. Um, it, makes, it makes sense at the end of the day. And the Infinity Investments, who are the developer, um, you know, they're clever people. And it's, it's not rocket science, really, at the end of the day. OK, so it's been uncovered. What happens now? Well, the actual site where the par sits here... Um, it's pretty typical of, of um, pass sites in this area. Well, there's only two real pass sites here. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're standing on historic wetland. We, you know, back in the day when this pass site was alive, uh, there was wetland around us. Yeah. And what we have here is a, a tongue of land um, standing, and on its three sides there are, there's water. Uh, the landscape's been changed now. But um, I'll show you a photo later and you can see what it was like. And along the land entrance point here is where the palisade fence was. Probably we think um, the main point of entry for the pa was just up there by those orange po- posts. Right. Uh, that was the Tauranga Waka. That oh, yeah. was where the waka landed. Yep. Um, the waterway here connects another pa up on the ridge line there, mm-hmm. which is where they used to work the greenstone, uh, which is known as Hoho Ponamu. Uh, that's probably the largest greenstone manufacturing site in the country. There was the economic industry here was was greenstone, and up 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 the uh, waterway up there, just through those trees, is Kaiapui Pa, and so it was easy access from the Kaiapui Pa down to, to this here. here and across to the greenstone industry up site. To the other one, right. um, and it was all by water. Yeah, and that makes sense because you wouldn't want to be carrying a whole lot of stone around your back. <laughs> it's just it's a lot easier to put it into a waka and work your way from place to place on the water. So, I mean, there's a kind of recreated waterway here. Does that, is that trying to follow as close as possible the, where the original water would have laid? No. Um, <clears throat> as you might appreciate, the design of this uh, part of the development, which is the golf course, was made uh, without knowing we had a pass site here. And so uh, throughout the golf course, a number of lakes, and this is just one of those lakes, it wasn't designed to reflect any of the uh, local uh, water channels. But what happened is when we did discover the PAR, 
Um, we realised what it was. Uh, we were able to, to shift the lake that way, so it didn't actually bite into the par. Originally, the lake was actually, you know, taking up half the par. Mm. So we um, redesigned it with the developer, pushed it that way. Uh, you can see that building over there is a pump station. Th- this lake is integral to the irrigation of the golf course. Okay. So the pump station was right up over there on top of the par. And by the time we discovered the par site, it's probably two years into our relationship with each other. And it was um, there was no hassles, there was no dramas about it. They understood the history of this land. They understand the importance of a par site to us and to New Zealand's heritage. And it was easy. It was just, we'll move that over there, we'll redesign that lake over there, and we'll retain this par site, and we'll celebrate it. And we'll, we'll, we'll do the right thing. The, these postals, which you can see here... Uh, they've been weathered for a year, and we've had some pretty horrendous rain this last year. So they're looking a bit weathered, but you can see... Uh, <laughs> really distinctive, man. One of, one of the signs that you see when the earth is cut is the, the colour of the earth changes, and you can see down here, uh, it goes from that clay look into a darker Kind of a darker grey. And that's an indication to our people that that area, or to archaeologists... Um, that area's been excavated. In the past, obviously, a hole was dug for the, one of the posts for the palisade fence, and it's been filled in. And as I was telling you before, the, one of our boys was excavating one of the post holes further up there and come across that you know, huge chunk of greenstone. And that's not uncommon, because they, you know, they backfilled and they um, well, put that know, sort of material there. Greenstone's just like <coughs> sand down here. Hey, it's so prevalent. <laughs> well, when the old Hohoponamu site up there on the ridge was excavated in the 60s and 70s by the Canterbury Museum, um, they apparently took away thousands and thousands of pieces of greenstone. And that's not all, you know, shaped adzes and, and things like that. That's the, the byproduct. A lot of it's the byproduct right. of industry. Uh, which also tells a story, you know, that, that's not rubbish to our people um, and definitely not rubbish to archaeologists because it tells a story of how they're working the stone. Yeah. And um, there's a thought at the moment by Dr Dan Witter, who's our lead archaeologist here, that um, he's, he's building up a picture of how they're working the stone. And at one time our people were, were doing a lot of um, grinding and cutting of the stone to shape it you couldn't really, there wasn't the technology of flaking greenstone. You could flake other stones because the, the composition of the stone allowed that. Uh, but greenstone being the, the toughest of the stones uh, in our country here, um, they weren't flaking it. But he, he suspects they got to a point where they could understand the stone so much that they, they knew how to do that. Right. Hence all the byproduct that we're finding out here. So Te Marinos, see how these... These are, I mean, these are distinctive shapes. Are these how they were, un, you know, uncovered, or, you know, see how like how square it is here in the? Oh, that, that's just typical. Or have you guys yeah. dug a way to make it? That's how the archaeologists work. So you'd find the sign. Yep. Okay. The, the earth's changed colour. There's something there. Okay. It's a post hole, and then they'll cut a section down there, which is that face, and then they'll obviously got a. Um, build some room for them to work in as they go down into the earth. Oh, so that's right. what you're seeing there. Okay. But the, I mean, the, the the cool thing about 
some of these findings cool. is that the, the base of the Po, the bases of the Po, they were still here. You know, and, and this is, we, we haven't dated these pieces of wood yet, but um, the indication is that this part site's at least 500 years old. And they're saying that because when they did, when the Canterbury Museum did work up there on the ridge, and they got down to the lowest layer of archaeology, they dated those shells to be at, you know, around 500 years ago. Well, the material in that lowest layer is the material which is on this par. And so this par is at least that old. And you sort of think about it, you'd probably build yourself a home before you saw, build yourself a, a Somewhere workshop. to work. Yeah. <laughs> a garage. A garage, yeah, a place to live first. So at least 500. Uh, Dan suspects it probably is one of the oldest par in the South Island. So there, there must be some middens around here then. Middens everywhere. Yeah. Yep. You can see. Yeah, I can see it there. The shallow pile over there. Mm. Uh, Which also means there must be some urupa. Well, the middens. Well, what was it, urupa? Well, we have found we burials around here. Uh, the middens are just remnants of meals. Uh, and what we found here is that that byproduct that the shells left over after a big feed, uh, they used to landscape a path down to the Tauranga Waka. And that, that makes good sense, you know, like... Because we do that now. Yes, we, we put do. our muscle shells in the driveway and drive over them. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we've got to think that back in the day, uh, that would have made it easier at night, on the twilight hours, to see as you're walking down the path. Um, in the rain, in the wet weather, it would have made uh, the slippery slope a lot less slippery. So, not nice and easy, not rocket science, as I was saying before. The edge of the par site where it hits the water, uh, we we found a retaining wall, an old retaining wall that had been backfilled. Um, there was a platform that we found uh, on the base of the water. So as you pulled your walker up, you know you'd be stepping out of your walker onto something solid. Um, easier to pull your walker out of the water, things like that. So it's been exciting, you know. It's been a real journey. Yeah. I mean, how does it feel for you? You fuck up up into this this area. Oh, it's, it's, I think it's the same for all of our whānau who have been out here. It's just an honour to be here, um, a real privilege, and we're, we're learning so much about who our past, you know, what our past is and who we are. And uh, we're here to do the, do our our best job for our people um, and our best job for our heritage, and we try to keep upbeat about it, and it seems to work. You know, we've we've had a real good relationship with the developer, uh, on the ground with the contractors, um, it's been pretty good all the time. So um, I think people generally just appreciate history. You know, it's nice to know where you are. It's nice to know where you come from, even if it's not your people. Um, we've got, you know, Waimakariri District now is filling up with immigrants from, um, it seems like every second guy around here is a Scotsman or an, a, an Englishman and there's South Africans moving in here. Um, and they all appreciate learning about the past so um, I think that's it's you know a, a common sort of human trait to, to want to you know to feel better knowing a little bit about the past. I then went on to ask Timarino Lenehan how he balances the practical aspects of the cultural advisor role with that of his hapu responsibilities. The journey we've been on here uh, isn't hasn't been easy and it hasn't been easy for a number of reasons. Um, you know, we're dealing with our past, and there's been parts of our history that have been, um, you know, a point of, of uh, mamai for our people. 
and what this development is doing in part is stirring that up and when the, when the development stirs that history up it makes the, the mamai appear again I suppose you might say. It's like it rises to the surface and you've, yeah. you've got to actually deal with it eh? And uh, so we're having to deal with that and I often wear my uh, my bright orange vest to our runanga meetings and think to myself, oh, it's bulletproof. Or <laughs> <laughs> you walk into your hui going, Tia, where's that target again? And it's right there. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that, that's okay, you know, that's okay because I've got uh, people Is like, it because people see you because of your involvement here as not... Yeah, I, I wasn't brought up down here. My mum was brought up here. And when she was, um, you know, graduated from training college as a 16-year-old or 17-year-old, she went north and married my father up there. And we essentially um, grew up in the North Island. But we were always back here in the, in the summer, you know, with, with our poa and grandmother. Um, who's still around, so hi Grandma, hope you're listening in. Um, so we do have a relationship down here, but I wasn't, you know, I'm not a known face. I wasn't a known face around here, so I'm a stranger. And so that's been, a, you know, something to get o- over. Um, but that's okay as well, because my family's still here. My whanau is one of the, one of the um, a sort of long-standing families of, of this area. So if I wasn't known, they know who my uncles and aunties and, and all that were. So that's that's been a help. Um, but as I was saying before, you know, it's it's the developments stirred things up. Um, it's forced our people to consider what our relationship is with our past, uh, what our relationship is with our wahitapu. And I guess also how to safeguard it for situations like this. A lot of learning on that respect, you know, um, for a long time we haven't been part of that decision you know it's just happened and it's rolled out and, and Christchurch is a perfect example uh, how many pass sites are there in Christchurch now buried and, and that can be said of probably every corner of New Zealand but we, we're now part of that decision making process um, and we're not trying to hold it up or get in its way we just want to ensure that our heritage out here is not built upon and forgotten um, it's important to us without a doubt but we believe it's important for everyone to know the heritage and the history of this country. So that's what our job is. We're, we're fighting for that. And you might have heard Uncle John say um, he'll fight for the best that this town can be. And he always reminds the developer that he's against it. But he knows it's happening, and so he'll work with the developer to fight for the best that it can be. And we're just fall, falling in behind Uncle Jono, really, and, and doing what we can do to help him out and help our own people out in that respect. So... Um, yeah, there's a lot of people to thank. Um, the people who have um, been there before us fighting uh, for these very same goals. And there's probably too many to name, but they know who they are, the ones who have been there. Um, at the moment, Claire Williams is the chairperson of the Runanga. And, um, you know, her and, and her family uh, and the other, fam- the, the other families, there's, yeah, in their way, everyone's concerned and everyone's interested. Um, and it's just the different ways in which they pass that on or express that. Um, and that may be quiet for some and that may be pretty loud for others. Uh, that's our people, you know, we're diverse. Uh, and, yeah, it, it's it's a hard journey. Uh, but I see that it's going to be good. You know, 
if we don't make it good, nobody's going to make it good for us. So we've just got to make it good. And I know deep down in the hearts, you know, when you get beyond the the Māori whispers syndrome and the rumour and the gossip and the backstabbing, which happens, and it happens in all communities, uh, particularly small communities, when you get beyond that, um, people have got a lot of love still, you know, and there's a lot of love in the heart, and, and they do care for you. Um, they just don't know how to, to say that sometimes. <laughs> Kia ora, te marino Lenahan. Head to our webpage, radioNZ.co.nz forward slash tiahika. There's photos and other information about the development. It could be argued that Naitu Hoi Tame Itzi wears upon his body his tinana, one of the most overexposed and highly recognised tāmoko in the world. And he's always on the hunt for new work and tāmoko practitioners. Moana Moko is a tauranga-based group of tāmoko artists that includes Stephanie Temaru. Inevitable then, eh, that they should meet. Justin Murray here for Radio New Zealand National at the Matatini um, Saturday, uh, the second day really of Matatini, and I'm here at the stalls at the Moana Moko 100% Ink the Genius. Kia ora whaia. Ah, kia ora, morena. Ko ai koe no hea koe. Ah, ko stiki mari i toko enua, no tauranga moana tonu au. Ka pai, now what are you guys doing today? Ai, ki nei rā, me ngā rā kai te heke mai, kai ko nei mātou, ki te, ki te whakamana, i tēnei taonga me ki, Te tāngo ngā tūpuna, te tāmoko, e, e ono ngā kaita o tēnei rōpui me ki, ko moana moko, mauri moko. Tēnei te kōrero mo tēnei rā, ko te mauri moko. E nō tauranga moana te rōpui nei? Nō tauranga so moana this... katoa ngā whanaunga, ngā kaimahi, me ngā wahine, Kapai, so all the staff and the artists are from Tauranga Moana and um, ko wai te, ko wai, um, te kai, kai mahi tēnei um, ahiahi? Oh, ko Stu McDonald tēnei, um, he rangatira ia ki roto tēnei rōpū, um, ara ko Stu McDonald, ko Pohe Lutenberger, ko Karam Hood, ko Cube Bidwa, ko Hepara, Steve. So we have Tame Itzi who is um, lying on the tāmoko bed at the moment and he is getting parts of his face done? Taringa. Taringa. Part of his taringa done and Stu McDonald is the tāmoko artist. And so Moana Moko, when was it established and, and, and why establish such a, such a rōpū? Te kautau e nai te rōpū Moana Moko. Since 98? Aye, uh, uh, been established, uh, it's a big call for people to have their moko done. So we started at Amarai, Paparua Marae, or Tawhiti Marae actually was our first moana moko wānanga. At this wānanga, we go around to each marae, we get the karanga, we go. We take the whole whānau through what 
moko is to us. Um, tikanga, kawa, koha, whenua, korero, rero, pakiwaitara, whakapapa, about where moana moko, where we've done our research, how we've done our research, how moko is in tauranga moana. And so what's your role, Steph? Are you just a kaiafina? Kaiafina, aye, kaiafina. And, and um, you are pretty, you know, you've got quite a few moko on yourself? Aye, aye. And so what, what, what started this journey off for you to get moko done? Uh, okay, so the death of your mum. And from then it's just, um, you can't stop it really. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Things happen in your life, or um, good things, bad things, whatever it may be, and you you mark that mark that time with a, a tohu. Well, that's what I've done. Choice. So, being here at Matatini, are you hoping to? What are you hoping to um, tell the people of Matatini throughout the weekend? Um, to show them how accessible Moko is, how approachable we are, and um, that people with um, uh, Moko Kanohi, uh, Moko Kauai. You know, this thing is scary. Mina he pātai tā rātai, me pātai te pātai. He pai noi ho tēnā. Kia ora, Steve. Ka pai, kia ora rā. OK, I'm with Tameti outside the tāmoko tent, and uh, he just finished getting some tāmoko work done. Uh, you know, you always look when there's a big venue around, and then see always, uh, always potential artists who want to put something on your skin. I'm one of those fellas, they always ask. Say, much, much, right. you got any spare skin? Oh, yeah, always a spare skin. <laughs> and uh, so today I got a, a young uh, Naitarangi, a Naitarangi artist, a very nice person. And uh, he's got a good naka, good way to so, uh, so I got him to uh, to ta na kuri afare kitihira. Oh, kapai. As a, as a, um, um, in the memory of this uh, gathering here, or the Chini Metamam. So how long did we line on the? Um, how long? What, what time did you start? Uh, probably about an hour. Oh yeah. yeah about an hour and uh, twenty minutes trying to work out the design, the, the design on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you got your taringa done? Yeah, yeah. I got my taringa here on my left and my right, and go cahoots with my tifama uh, to my kaki and work it out. Yep. Eventually, because uh, my, my belief is I'm not specifically, um, I'm fussy who's doing it, but um, I'm not specifically one, one particular person doing it, because then your skin is like a canvas, so uh, my skin is the canvas, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, trial for other artists, if I see potential artists, or try this lip. I've got one piece here, and it's called a koyo, uh, on the right, on the right, on the right uh, arm, and uh, it's a dumpai called Chase Tauti. So he will tell us his first piece of work. Look a bit rough, but it's art. It's art. So it's not about, you know, looking, you know? Yeah, so it's yeah. that. What are your fakaro about tamuko in general? Well, I think we initiated something, as, uh, we started something, trying to put something together. And I think that the whole thing about that particular art is to encourage, to support, to enhance, and to bring it to where it belongs. So you're not doing backstreet stuff and sort of kind of boob stuff. And, and I think that the, um, the, the initial beginning of Tāmoko, and then even when I went around and asked the different phenomena about it, uh, they, um, they kind of said to me, oh, leave it alone. And I said, well, if you say leave Tāmoko alone, then are you saying leave Waiata alone? 
waiata tipuna waiata koraua are you saying why well, here to haka lead to haka alone no 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 that's what you're saying so they kind of think and so i think yes that the most important thing is the consciousness of it and then make people more aware about what it is and uh, so i think that uh, that so to date now but that the woman beating us but that's okay what do you mean to. the women are beating us? Well, I think there's more women with muko than there are with men. Men kind of don't want to take the women uh, uh, will take it full on. So uh, they got the kaua. So uh, it's really beautiful to see beautiful muko. Mm. So, uh, and I think that's uh, it's a good sign. Mm. And uh, it shows our toyola. So what about Ben Harper and Robbie Williams with muko? What's your views on that? Tommy? Oh, you call it tuhi, uh, kiri tuhi. Kiri, kiri tuhi, tuhi is, a, is a tattoo. Not a moko. Aye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, young Amiri Reki? Well, not the man, Haraka Fakapapa to it. It takes way that the Mariki. So, it's done by an artist. So, you get Fakapapa. Like I sent you there, or the Kori Rotene, Utene, Utene, Tamoko, Maina Kuria Fare Kitihira, because I Fakapapa to that. So, you got, you got people who all around the world say, this will look cool. Aye. Well, that's all right too. We all want to look cool, but this is connection. Mm-hmm. Kia ora. Tami Iti discussing the difference between tāmoko and kirituhi. And according to Tami, the difference between what Robbie Williams and Ben Harper wear is whakapapa Māori. Whakapapa Māori makes it tāmoko. Anything else is tattoo or kirituhi. And here he is again saying that somewhat differently in a track by Moana Maniopoto from her album Rua. Te de mātau, te huna moko, e tūnei o te tēne aururi. the marking of patterns by inserting coloured dyes under a smooth skin. The word moko represents a traditional custom in which spirals, unique to Māori, are carved deeply below the skin's surface to produce a groove scar. Did you know that? Because the head, the most sacred part of the body, was touched, blood spilled, the whole ceremony was toppled. The tip of a bird bone chisel dipped into sooty black pigment tapped by a beater to the sounds of songs created to soothe the painful process of creating moko. So don't use that word tattoo. Every style has a name, every line on a face, don't use that word. I wear my pride upon my skin. I'm Maria Rakraku and this is Tiahika. Toitu te marae o tangarua, toitu te marae o tāne, toitu te iwi. Ki te kore tātou e tiaki i tō tātou au, ka mate tātou katoa.
Kai te mihi atu tēnei mō kai o te aroa me Ngāti Parau ko Anatāpiata tēnei. Kia That's us for another week. Kina kai kōrero mō tēnei wiki, he mihi tēnei ki a koutou, me te kai rā wiki wiki mihini, kia ora. Hei te rā wiki, mai te whānau a te ahikā ki a tātou katoa, mauri ora tātou katoa. Here's a track from album One Giant Leap that was released in 2001. Now the story goes that the producers of the album, Jamie Cato and Duncan Bridgman, were getting some kiritihi, some tattoo, in a studio in Auckland. And the CD playing in the background was Whirimuckle Black. So because we like one person removed in New Zealand, and they got to talking to the tattooers, who knew some people, who knew some people, and next minute they were meeting with Whirimuckle, Recording a track, and here it is, Tamoko. Oh 